All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and grab them uh, and turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Before we get going, uh, let me just quickly introduce myself once again. Uh, my name is Matt Ross. For those of you who don't know who I am, uh, I think just about everybody in here knows who I am. Uh, maybe a few of you don't. Um, but like Ryan said, uh, I have the privilege uh, of coming to you. Uh, I've served here uh, in high school ministry over the past year. And uh, every time that I have this opportunity to come and to lead you guys in the teaching of God's word, I consider that uh, a tremendous uh, privilege and one that I enjoy having. Well, if you're new with us here tonight, or uh, if you are coming into uh, this talk, having not been here over the last uh, few weeks, or you've been in and out, uh, you're joining us in the middle of a series that we have titled, uh, Jesus and Identity. Jesus and Identity. And Ryan has provided us with a definition for identity that has kind of uh, been the overarching theme for everything that we've talked about uh, thus far over the last few weeks. Uh, can anybody tell me what that definition is? It comes out of a book by Jerry Bridges. I know somebody knows it because somebody said it last week. <laughs> the guy who said it last week still got it. You got it? Okay, yeah. So in that book, Jerry Bridges, he writes these words. That you were created in the image of God, dependent upon God, accountable to God for the glory of God. I'll say that again. You were created in the image of God, dependent on God, accountable to God for the glory of God. And that definition, like I said, has been kind of the overarching theme that we have used in each one of our teaching sessions. And so in the first week, if you were here, Ryan talked about what it means that we are created in the image of God, what it means that we are created in his likeness, that God, uh, if God had a fingerprint, right, he's, he's put his impression upon us. We are made in his likeness. And then the second week, we talked about what it means that we live in light of Genesis chapter 3, right? We live in a fallen, uh, broken world that because of our disobedience in Adam, right, we chose to go and turn against God, that has wreaked havoc uh, in our lives. It has uh, uh, distorted and it's perverted that image that God has uh, put within us. And then two weeks ago, Ryan talked about what it means for us to abide in Jesus, right, that we are to abide in the vine. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And so he talked about what it means for us to trust in Jesus, to have faith in Jesus, right? And then last week, we talked about what it means that because if you are a Christian, right, and that, that was really the, the focal point of his talk last week, that if you are a Christian, right, because you trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ and his life and in his death and in his resurrection, because you trust in that fully, that he is your righteousness, not anything in yourself, that he is your justification, and that because that is true, right, that produces certain acts within you. It produces certain uh, characteristics in you, right? And so that brings us to where we're at tonight. And tonight we're going to be talking about what it means for us to live in light of our brokenness, 
We're going to talk about what it means for us to be honest about our brokenness. And we're going to talk about that in light of our identity. And so I want to start with that idea of identity, what identity means. And the thing about identity, right, is that society provides us with a number of areas for us to put our identity in, right? Uh, everything. People, people all over this nation uh, today, people are, are working their nine to five jobs. They're, they're doing the Monday through Friday thing. Uh, they're, they're raising children in the context of their marriage. And, and so many people are living life today uh, really with, without any kind of purpose, without any kind of, of meaning or direction for their lives, just kind of aimlessly walking, uh, looking for a place to find security. And that's really what identity is in a lot of ways, isn't it? Security, a place where we find worth in ourselves. But amidst all of these empty identities, amidst all of these false uh, self-worth uh, placements, uh, is we have to ask this question of, of, of who are we really? Who are we really? And so I'm going to ask you that question tonight. I want you to think about this. But who are you? Who are you? Are you more than the job that you work? Or is that all that you are? Are you the books that you study? Are you the relationships that you're in? Are you the sports that you play? Are you the car that you drive? Are you the makeup that you wear? And I'm here to tell you tonight that, that the truest thing about you and the truest thing about me and what identifies us, it doesn't come in the relationship status that you have. Right? It, doesn't, it doesn't come in the academic prestige that you pursue. The truest thing about you doesn't come in the athletics that you participate in. It doesn't come in, in any of these things. It doesn't come in the friends that you have and the jobs that you work and the cars that you drive. It doesn't come in the body that you operate and function in. It doesn't come in any of those things. But the truest thing about us comes in knowing who God is and what God has to say about us in his word. Amen? And so with that, let's, let's go to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And we're going to pick it up in verse 35. Luke chapter 18 and verse 35. I want you to look up at me when you got it. All right. So as he drew near to Jericho... A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight, for your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight, and he followed him, glorifying God. 
And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Let's pray together as we dig into God's word. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to think together about your word. And Lord, we ask that you would cause it to do what you inspired it to do. And we ask that you would reveal yourself to us. We pray that you would cause us to see the glory of your justice and the surprising wonder of your mercy. And Father, we pray that you would cause us to feel our great need for your mercy through the display of your justice. And we ask that you would cause us to trust you. Cause us to think of you as the sovereign Lord of the universe, the creator of all things to whom we are all together responsible. And Father, we pray that you would cause us to live in ways that correspond to those realities. Lord, make us aware to the fact that you have created, that you have redeemed, that you have made a way for us to be reconciled to you through our Lord Jesus. And Father, we pray that through this, you would cause us to be people who love you and who love your people and who are honest about who we are because the good news is true. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have been through the Taco Bell drive through in the last few years, you know that you are greeted with one of the most awkward and uncomfortable questions that any drive through restaurant could ever ask you. Now, as you're going through in your car and you're making your way uh, through the drive through your mind is totally fixed, right, on that steak chalupa or the Crunchwrap Supreme or my personal favorite, the Mountain Dew Baja Blast. Anybody else? Oh, I see you back there. Uh, but your mind is totally fixed. And as you, you come through, they're going to ask, I don't know where they got this. I don't know why this is their marketing scheme. But as you go through, they're going to ask you a question. They're going to say, hello, welcome to Taco Bell. How are you? How am I? Like, how do you answer that question? Uh, I, I'm hungry. Um, I've had a bad week. Uh, things aren't going really well for me right now. I've been having a tough time at school. Right? Nobody, nobody answers that way. It's kind of an awkward moment where you say, well, I'm good. I'm good. I'll, I'll take a number four combo, right? Uh, but I'm, I always imagine in that moment, what would it be like if I were to say, you know, I've, I've been really having a hard time. Uh, things, things, things have been difficult in my life right now, but I'm wondering, how are you? You know, and then you come back, and then maybe you, after 15 minutes of dialogue, you, you go back home, and you talk with your mom, and you say, you know what, Mom? I had a really good conversation with a dude on the intercom at the Taco Bell. Now, that would be kind of dumb, wouldn't it? That's a weird question. But we say, good, I'm good. But we, do, we get that question a lot in life, don't we? We pass through our schools. Uh, we, we pass through church. People ask, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. How are you? Well, I'm good. Good. And sometimes, right, that's, that's an appropriate response at times, but, but sometimes we, we try to keep it as general and as respectable as we possibly can. And while that is appropriate, like I said, in many instances, I wonder if we often answer that question in an honest way. 
I wonder if we ever truly answer that question of, of how are you really? I wonder if we ever get down to, to who we really are. But here in this story, in the book of Luke, Luke tells us about a man who knew himself rightly. He was one of society's lowest of the low, a blind beggar who comes to Jesus with nothing but a plea for mercy, nothing but a cry for help, and nothing but a need for power far beyond himself. And so we examine this story that Luke unfolds for us. And as we do, here's what I want you to do. I want you to find yourself amidst the story, okay? Uh, the way that the gospel writers tee up their messages, they're, they're not explicit, okay? The Apostle Paul, he writes letters, right? And he writes explicitly to, to these churches in detail. But, but the gospel writers, they write differently. They're, they're telling a story, okay? And, and I want you to look and I want you to find yourself in the story, So we have, who are, the, who are the characters in this story? Who are these characters? Somebody tell me. As we look in this story, identify who they are. Let's see how good of a Bible studiers you are. Who do we got? The blind man. Who else? There's three I'm looking for. Somebody said Jesus and the crowd. So we have a blind man, the crowd, and Jesus. So at this point in Luke's narrative, Jesus and his disciples, uh, they're traveling, and you're going to see this all throughout. If you're, if you're a good reader and you pay attention to, to narrative, I know you, how many of you guys are in uh, English literature courses right now? Yeah. And so you study how uh, uh, these, these stories work, right? And you look for themes. And one of the major themes in every one of the Gospels that you'll see is that Jesus moves from Galilee and he's moving to the religious epicenter of Jerusalem, all right? And that's intentionally done by every gospel writer because what takes place in Jerusalem is ultimately the climax of every one of their letters. It's a place where Jesus will be crucified, right? It's a place where he's, he's going to die. That's, that's the point. And Jesus knows that all along the way. But they're traveling, and they're making their way to Jerusalem for what purpose? Where, why, why are they headed to Jerusalem? Who can answer that question? Why are they going? Passover. Oh, yeah, you're good. So they're headed to the Passover. So if you, if you don't know what the Passover is, right, this is why it's so good that you know your Old Testament because Old Testament and New Testament bleed together, don't they? And so they're headed to this religious feast of sorts, Right? In the Passover, it was, a, it was a Jewish holiday where Jewish men and women uh, would celebrate the exodus of Israel coming out of Egypt. Right? And it was a time where they would gather together specifically to remember how God had shown himself to be faithful. Right? God had provided an atonement for the people in order that they might live. And so Jesus is headed that way. And all along the way, he encounters all sorts of characters. He encounters tax, tax collectors. He encounters blind beggars. He encounters uh, the lowest of the low. And here he is. This is one of the last miracles that he's going to perform before he is taken away. 
And so the first thing that I want us to see in this text and notice here comes in verses 35 through 39. Read it again. So as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, for whatever reason in this story, the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by meant more to this blind man than it meant to most of the other people in the crowd. It was significant for him. And this text doesn't explicitly tell us uh, what this man's name was, but if you work through other gospel accounts, we can know that this name, this man's name was probably Bartimaeus, okay? So he's blind Bart, okay? So in our modern context, you guys know when you go to like the Reds games and you see like that guy who's begging for money, you know what I'm talking about? So here's this guy, blind Bart over here, right? And blind Bart is, uh, he's, he's an outcast, okay? Um, he is blind, he is a beggar, he is an outcast, he has no status within culture at large. The culture would have largely seen him as a waste uh, of a human being. The only person that maybe that he would have a higher social status than is maybe a tax collector. And, and those fools were not people you want to mess with, which is who Jesus is going to pick up in the next chapter is Zacchaeus, uh, which is funny, you know, who Jesus rolls with. But they largely would have seen him as a waste. And the thing that you have to know is that why would this man have known about Jesus of Nazareth? You see, up to this point, Jesus has been ministering for almost three years now. And he's built quite the reputation for himself. People know who Jesus is at this point. People either love him, right? They believe him to be Messiah. Uh, some people think he is a mad, mad man. Some people want to kill him. But, but Jesus is building quite the reputation for himself. And, and somewhere along the way, uh, this man, uh, Blind Bart, right, has heard about Jesus. Maybe it was uh, Jesus raising Lazarus to life. He, at some point, he's heard about Jesus. But the thing that I want us to see here is that Blind Bart, this man... He, he's not just observing Jesus. He's not just admiring Jesus. He's not just discussing Jesus. What this man is doing is he is pleading by faith for Jesus to have mercy on him. Now, why would he, why would he say, why would he be pleading for him for mercy? Right? There's a, there's a difference in the text. Look at this. In verse 36. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, What's his name? What do they identify Jesus as? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And and how does the blind man identify him? Jesus, son of David, right? Why is that significant? Why is that significant? This is another reason why you need to know your Old Testament. Because... Through the Hebrew scriptures, we see this pointing to this one. 
So Jesus is passing by, and, he, and he's concluding something by faith about Jesus, right? He believes that Jesus is the Messiah, that through the line of King David would come the seed of the ultimate king who would reign and rule over all things. And he knows something about Jesus, and by faith he's saying, I believe this man to be the Messiah. So this is messianic. He's saying, Jesus Messiah, uh, Jesus son of David, Jesus, he's, he's pointing to him as the Christ, right? That's what he's saying. He's identifying Jesus as that. So like I said, he's not observing Jesus, he's not admiring Jesus, he's not discussing Jesus. All he's doing is he wants to plead to Jesus. And it's by his faith. But here's the next thing I want us to see. Verses 37 through 39. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him telling him to be silent. But the next thing I want us to see is that regardless of what others thought or said about this man, it never stopped him from calling on Jesus. So I want you to imagine this scene, okay? Imagine this scene in this story. There's all this hoopla and, and all of this fiasco that surrounds Jesus and his character. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And they want to see and catch a glimpse of this man. This, this, to some, he's a respected rabbi. To others, he's a renegade outlaw. Who is this man, Jesus? And here's this blind beggar as, as, as the crowds are, are working their way through. And he's yelling, Jesus, son of David! Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me! And people behind are saying, get, the, get that dude out of here! Shut up, Right? And it only makes him go even farther. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Others are yelling for him to shut up, and yet he knows that his only hope in the midst of his poverty, his only hope in the midst of his blindness, his only hope is Jesus. It's Jesus. And that truth and that reality is the same reality for every one of you sitting in this room here tonight. It's true for you. It's true for you. It's one of the things I love about the scriptures is because they are blatantly honest with who we are. They tell us who we are. And sometimes it's not a pretty picture, right? You guys know a familiar passage, Ephesians 2. You can flip there if you want. 1 to 3. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, does anybody ever read that and think, are, are we really that bad, Paul? I mean, come on, Paul. I mean, I, I hear you say I'm a, a child of wrath, but, man, I look around at and myself, and I look around at my buddies, and, you know, we haven't killed anybody. Uh, we haven't, you know, I'm not sleeping around with my girlfriend, and I'm not drinking uh, beer and getting plastered on the weekends, you know. I mean, most people would call me a pretty good guy, right? I, I go to church. People respect me there, you know. But when we do that, I'm afraid that too often we gauge our sense of goodness 
based on too low of a standard. Right? We, we say he or she is a good person. According to what? What is your definition of good? I'm going to go here for one second. Um, so my brother, Kevin, uh, when he was in high school, over at Scott High School, uh, he, was, he, was a track, he was a track star. Um, and he was a high jumper. And uh, I, I got to take him his senior year to the University of Louisville, and he competed uh, in uh, the state track meet there at L. And he finished top five in the state in high jumping. Uh, kids jumping, he's high jumping six, foot, six feet six inches. Uh, he's a stud. Um, he was. Uh, but uh, I want you to imagine for a second, right, like, he had reason to boast, right, than other people. It's like, dude, you can't even jump five feet. Like, he's, he's jumping six feet, six inches. Like, yeah, I school you. But I want you to imagine for a second that, that God's standard in high jumping, like, like, what is six feet, six inches if God jumps to the moon and back? Well, you, how, do, how do you size up to God? God outshoots you a million to one and in an infinity more than that. And so in the, in the eyes of God, right, our, our goodness and our self-worth, right, like what, what is that to God? Right, Paul knew this, wrote this in Romans chapter 3 and 11 through 18. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. And their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. If that is who God is and that's how we size up, look, there's no reason for you to ever think you're, there's no reason for you to ever think I'm awesome. There's no reason for you to ever say, look, look at me and let's play the, let's play the comparison game. No, this, the standard is God Almighty. God in his holiness, uh, he far outweighs us. Right? And, it, and, it, and, it, and we pale and pale and pale in comparison to who he is. Right? So here's what I want to do in this next thing. The next thing that I want us to see and verses 40 through 43, is that all things become clear in the face of Jesus. All things become clear in the face of Jesus. Let's go to verse 40. And Jesus stopped, and he commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. I want everybody in here to close your eyes for a minute. Close your eyes for a minute. And I want you to imagine that from this point forward, the sight that you see is the sight that you would have for the rest of your life. I want you to imagine that this is what you would see 
when you wake up. This is what you would see when you eat. This is what you would see when you interact with your family, with your friends. This is what you would see when you travel and when you function throughout life. This is it. And now open your eyes. And I want you to imagine seeing those things for the very first time. Seeing those things for the very first time. If you were to have that happen to you, your whole world would change, wouldn't it? And this man, check this, the first thing that he sees when he opens his eyes is the face of Jesus. Right? All things have become clear when he sees what he has put his faith in. Here's the man, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David. Here he is, my savior and my king. All things have become clear when I open my eyes. All things become clear in the face of Jesus. Tim Keller writes this. He says, the gospel of justifying faith means that while Christians are in themselves still sinful and sinning, yet in Christ, in God's sight, they are accepted and righteous. So we can say that we are more wicked than we ever dared believe. You are more wicked than you even know. But check this. But if you are in Christ, you are more loved and you are more accepted than you ever dared hope. At the very same time, And this creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth. It means that the more you see your own flaws and sin, the more precious and electrifying and amazing God's grace appears to you. But on the other hand, the more aware you are of God's grace and acceptance in Christ, the more able you are to drop your denials and your self-defenses and admit the true dimensions and character of your sin. What he's saying is if you are secure in Christ, if you know who you are in Jesus, you're free, right? You're free. I'm not, I'm not saying that you open air your sin to everybody. I'm not saying you get online and you post everything that you've ever done. Don't do that. That, that could go bad for you. But what I am saying is that you should have a tight knit of people that you can say, hey, in the, in the deepest, darkest regions of my unbelief, This is what comes out. And I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to feel insecure about that because my security, my foundation, the thing that I build everything that I have is based upon Jesus and his accomplished work. And for me to deny that is is to be prideful. It it demonstrates a, a lack of that foundation. But if you're firm in Jesus, you're free. And you're free to not hide Not hide behind your brokenness, but to open yourself up to others. James says this in James chapter 5, verse 16. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. One of the healthiest things that you can do as a Christian, and I hope that you saw yourself there in this character, Bartimaeus. I hope you see yourself in that. But one of the healthiest things that you can do is is to be honest about your sin and to confess it to a brother, a faithful brother or a sister in the Lord, right? Be honest. 
And so as we close, I have a few questions for you. My first question is, are you in the crowd observing, discussing, admiring Jesus? Or are you a beggar? Are you a beggar pleading for Jesus? Who are you? Secondly, if you are in Christ, can you be honest with trusted others about even your darkest sins? Right, because I'm afraid that too many of us have this compartmentalized Christianity. And we show up on Sunday nights, and we show up on Sundays and we're one person, but, but on Friday nights, I'm a different cat. But can you be honest? You see the freedom in the gospel. Can you be honest about even your darkest sins? And then lastly, when others look at your life, do they think, do you think they have reason to give praise to God? Right, in verse, verse 40, 43 in this text, says, and immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, they gave praise to God. When other people look at your life, do they have reason to praise God? And if they do, why? Why? Those would be great questions for us to think about. So with that, let me, let me close in a word of prayer and we'll be wrapped up. Father, we sang those words just a few moments ago that, and earlier this morning that you are you're more than we can imagine. You are infinitely more than all we could know. You are more holy and perfect and blameless and pure than we could ever imagine. And God, we are more sinful and wretched than we could ever know. I I pray for every student in here that they would come to know the love of Jesus that, that sets us free, that gives us eyes to see. And God, for the believers in this room who, who know you, Lord, I pray, God that, God, that they would see you more clearly, that they would come to know you more deeply. And God, accomplish this work for the sake of your glory. And in your name I pray. Amen.